<laughs> Welcome to those of you who are joining us online. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Pastor Graham. I'm the teaching pastor here at Elam Chapel. And we have been working our way through the Gospel of John. Uh, I think we've been having a great time, and today we're in one of my favorite stories, so I'm really excited to get into it. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll get into the Bible. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for today. Thank you for children. Thank you for worship. Thank you for gathering together, God. And thank you for your word. We pray that today we would find a new connection with you, God, that we would encounter you more deeply, more fully, that we would love you better, that we would serve you more, that we would be your people as you are our God. Pray that you would open our hearts and minds today to receive from you. In your name, amen. So today we are in the 11th chapter of John in one of my favorite stories about Jesus, the raising of Lazarus. And before we start reading and going through this chapter, let's remember what we've been learning all through the Gospel of John. The whole point of this book is so that you will believe. And we haven't been reading this in some abstract, academic, general, non-specific, someone out there you might believe, but that you might believe. I might believe. You might believe. And to that end, one of the things that we've noted about John's gospel is that the miracles that Jesus performs are never called that. He never uses the word miracle. They're only ever called signs. And the thing about signs is that they point to things. Signs communicate. This miracle that we're talking about today is the last time that John uses that word. Now, there are more things in the Gospel of John that we might call sign acts, like if we made that one word, right? But we, they would, we would describe them as actions which tell us more than simply what they are, right? So the big one that we could point to would be the resurrection of Jesus, right? John doesn't refer to this as a sign, but this is an action that <laughs> tells us a whole lot, right? It might be the most important action of all time, but John doesn't use the word sign to describe it. Or to take a more, maybe a more accessible example, something not so obviously supernatural. In Jesus' clearing of the temple, Jesus, it's, this is a sign act because it is telling us something about Jesus and about the Father. It is an action which is pointing. But of course, nothing miraculous happened when Jesus cleared the temple right? Like, it's, it wasn't a miracle, but we could still think of it in that way. So there are still going to be things in the Gospel of John, but not things that use the word sign. And the fact that John uses the word sign for the last time in today's chapter should be significant and tells us that we need to pay attention to what's going on. So let's start reading the Gospel of John, chapter 11, and verse 1. I'm going to be reading from the NIV. If you would like to join me with a Bible that you're reading or holding, or if you have one on your phone, that's great too. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay, now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. 
So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. Let's pause there for a moment. We left off last week in chapter 9 with the healing of the man born blind and the response of the Pharisees. But chapter 10, which we had to skip over, is an extension of that same conversation that began at the end of chapter 9. Jesus is speaking with some Pharisees, but also some regular people, and Jesus, becoming more bold, announces quite publicly that he and the Father are one. And this is not met with murmuring. This is not met with plotting or scheming. They pick up stones. They are going to kill him right there. That's the response to what Jesus had said. Jesus, however, escapes their grasp. It is not yet his time, and they have no power over him. So Jesus heads out across the Jordan River into the wilderness in order to let the heat die down. Right? If you think of some old west bandit who escapes across a state line, this is that sort of idea. And this is important context because Bethany, the village that they're talking about going to, is two miles from Jerusalem. It is rock-throwing distance, which was very almost literal for these disciples, right? They literally almost got stones thrown at them to kill them. And that this like just happened. And they're going, they're talking about going right back there. That's why the disciples are reacting like this. So verse 11, he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. And his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought that he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, I've heard preachers describe Thomas here as perhaps being overly dramatic or as an expression of mourning for Lazarus, right? Let us die with him. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think Thomas isn't saying that we may die with Lazarus. I think he's saying that we may die with Jesus. He's throwing up his hands in resignation. Fine. Fine. You want to go back to Judea? Fine. Let's go hand ourselves over to the people that want to kill us. You're God. I'm not. Fine. Have you ever felt like that? Like God is asking you to do something and just by looking at it, you know that this is not going to go well. Have you ever then been stunned by the way that God took care of you when you followed through on it? Spoiler alert, neither Jesus nor the disciples are killed on this trip. God makes a way when we can't see one. But now we come to the real meat of the story and the three members of this family, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, are going to be our lesson guides. So keep them in mind. That's, that's where our focus is going to be. That's where we'll focus our attention for today. So verse 17, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. I want to say a couple things about this. 
you to note that even if Jesus had left the moment that he heard Lazarus was sick, he still would have arrived two days after the death, right? Jesus waited two days in verse 6. But when he arrived, Lazarus had already been dead four. We don't know how long the trip was, but just based on algebra, we can know that. And we should also clarify that there's no gap between dying and being buried, or rather, entombed. Jewish culture and God's law had very serious rules around dead bodies. And for good reason, there's a lot of health concerns. So it wasn't just that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. He'd been dead for four days. It's not like our culture where bodies of those who have passed, or reg- who have passed on regularly spend like a week or even two waiting at a funeral home and then have a funeral and are then interred, right? It wasn't like that. But the second thing I want to point out is about this four days gap, that there was a superstition at the time, not a biblical belief, not something taught by scripture, but a superstition, that when a person died, their soul or their spirit sort of hung around for about three days, and that during this time, the body might even revive, But by day four, you were dead, dead. Dead, 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 dead. That spirit had passed on. It was far away. It had gone on to be with the Lord or however they were, they were characterizing it at that point. There was no question anymore. And this is important because Jesus' miracles have been ramping up. Last week, Jesus didn't just heal a man who was blind. He healed a man who had been born blind. And according to the text, that was unheard of. Last week, we compared this difference to the difference between getting cataract surgery to have your vision restored and reattaching or even growing optical nerves, right? That it's a whole different category of healing. And today is also a new category. Jesus is raising someone from the dead. And not just dead, but dead, dead, four days in the tomb, gone. It is an escalation of Jesus' claim to be divine, and his works are the proof. Let's go back to our story. Verse 18, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. I think Martha's reaction is so good. She's got the right instincts, right? She knows to go to Jesus. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And that is a hard question to be asking. It's one that I've heard many times. God, how could you? That is Martha's question. How could you let this happen, Jesus? But what's great about this question is that she is asking the question to Jesus, right? She's not asking it to her bestie over coffee. She's not saying it to the boys over a round of golf. She didn't take her question to the mom group on Facebook. She went to Jesus with her question. In her pain and her grief and her loss, she went to Jesus. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. 
Now, to me, this sounds like a perfectly good and pious response. Martha has given what by all accounts looks like the right answer. Jesus says to her, this isn't the end. You will see your brother again. And she says, yes, God, I know that I'll see him again in heaven. That's true, right? Martha has said a true thing. She is on the right track, but she's not quite there. Martha has the right beliefs. She's got the doctrine. She understands the church the church teaching on eternal life and the resurrection of the body, and she has that final hope. But that is not what Jesus is asking. Jesus is not asking whether she agrees with the doctrine. Jesus is pointing to himself. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Being a Christian, living this life isn't about agreeing with academic points and statements of belief. It's about a person. It's about knowing and loving and trusting Jesus, a real flesh and blood man at the same t- and at the same time the god and creator of the universe who loved us enough to put it all aside and become one of us belief in ideas that can be comfortable it's the sort of thing that you can talk about with some distance but following jesus is about belief in a person it is a deeply personal belief and not just because it is literally centered around a person but also because it is something that strikes us in our core. It affects everything. This is what Martha needed to understand. Believe is an action word. Believe in Jesus. Not just as a concept, not just as a principle, but as a person, as an active. Verse 27, yes, Lord, she replied, believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who is to come into the world. Now, Martha is trying, and I don't think that she's there yet based on some other things that happen later in this story, but she is well on her way. She's well on her way, and that's great. Let's look at Mary now. Verse 28, after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What's it? thing to me here is that Mary's question is exactly the same as Martha's question, word for word. Word for word, it is the same question. But Jesus' response is so different. Martha is trying to understand, right? Jesus responds with understanding, with a revelation about himself and an invitation to closer relationship. But that's not his response to Mary. I get that I get the impression that Martha asks her question with tears running down her face. Lord, if you had been here. Mary is sobbing. Mary is full-bodied, barely able to speak, ugly crying. <gasps> it is different. 
And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. This is our second lesson for today. The second belief that John leaves for us in this passage. Martha's lesson was to believe in Jesus as a person, not a concept. Mary's lesson is to believe that Jesus cares. This, this last verse that we read, verse 35, I am continually, continually amazed that this verse exists. Like, why is that there? Why did Jesus weep? Was he mourning his friend? Surely not. Jesus not only fully knew that Lazarus was dead, but also that he was about to bring him back to life. He told us so back in verse 11. So what is Jesus doing? Why is he crying? Why is he weeping? Because Jesus is caring. Jesus is meeting Mary where she is. Jesus is feeling her pain and her loss and her grief, and he is sharing it. Just as he met Martha where she was, so he meets Mary. And Mary's pain matters to him. Jesus knows that resurrection is right around the corner. He knows that this grave is about to turn into a garden, that this mourning will become dancing, and that their cries of grief are about to become cries of joy. Yet Jesus wept because their pain mattered to him. Temporary and short though it was, and so too does your pain matter to Jesus. Even if it's only temporary, even if God is promising that one day he will bind all of our wounds and heal us, our pain today still matters to him. He is the God who sees. He is the God who is present. He's the God who cares. He's the God who weeps. But to add to that, there is another emotional reaction that Jesus displays in this passage, twice, in fact. In verse 33, when Jesus sees Mary and also those who were with her all morning, the passage says that he was deeply moved in spirit. The same phrase again appears in verse 38, which we haven't read yet, as Jesus arrives at the tomb. If you're reading a King James or a New King James, it doesn't say deeply moved. It says he groaned in his spirit. The New Living Translation says that a deep anger welled up in him. And it's because the Greek word here is difficult to translate because it is difficult to articulate in any language. This isn't a problem of Greek to English. This is a problem of, of the concept. The Greek word is associated with the angry snorting of horses. <sighs> we could almost translate this as something like Jesus snarled. Jesus is angry. Jesus is heartbroken for the pain of these people for whom he cares deeply, and he is also furious that the world is this way to cause such harm and such pain. This isn't how it was meant to be. This isn't the very good world that was created through him and for him. 
but it will be again. Because he is the God who cares. He is the God who sets things right. He is the God who weeps in our pain, but he is also the God who snarls before evil. Believe deep in your soul that Jesus cares. Verse 36. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could, he, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. So the last person that I want to talk about today is Lazarus himself. Martha needed Jesus. Mary needed Jesus. And Lazarus, possibly most of all, needed Jesus. But Lazarus didn't need Jesus to correct some mistaken thinking. He didn't need Jesus to meet him in his hurt and comfort him. Lazarus needed Jesus to live. The metaphor of being spiritually dead without Jesus is all over the New Testament. Remember Jesus' statement to Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. This is what Lazarus needed from Jesus. Resurrection and life. And it's what our world needs too. The call to salvation is essential. Fundamentally, it is what we're called to do as Christ's church. Not the building or the organization, but as a collection of Christians, our fundamental call is to share salvation with the world. Because people are dying and going to hell. And people are living in what may as well be hell. Our world needs the resurrection power of Jesus to bring us to life and to restore us to right relationship with God and begin setting the world right. Maybe that's you today, and, that, and what you need from Jesus is life. At the end of the service, we're going to have volunteers down here at the front, and if you're watching online, we have people who, who are online there who can pray with you because we would love to come alongside you. We'd love to celebrate. We'd love to give you whatever help we can as we begin this journey. Because this, this moment that Lazarus faced, we are all going to face it. Like Lazarus, there will come a day when we have passed on and we will hear the Lord's voice. Jesus told us so back in John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. So don't be caught unawares. Believe Jesus and receive resurrection. 
But Jesus didn't only say that he was the resurrection. He said the resurrection and the life. And I would argue that most Christians have received resurrection from Jesus, but not life. For so many Christians, life goes on just as it would without Jesus. You go to work, you pay your taxes, you send your kids to school, you play some golf, you watch some TV. Maybe other than Sunday morning, if we audited your week, would it be obvious that Jesus is animating your life? That you live differently than the people around you who are doing this thing entirely in their own strength? This is what John's gospel is all about He writes so that we may believe, so that we may continue to believe. But this isn't about agreeing with some principle, assenting to some fact statement. Believe is an action word. We must believe Jesus for life, for resurrection, but we must also believe in a person, not a doctrine. We must have a relationship with Jesus, a real person who interacts with us and speaks and listens. And to do that, we must believe that he cares, really cares. On our darkest day, when everything seems lost, that God is there with us, offering comfort, but also hope and a future. And we must believe this, not on Sunday morning, but with our whole lives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage today. Lord, we thank you for what you did in the lives of Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Lord, we pray that you would do it in ours. Lord, so many of us you have called to life. You have called us to life in you. Help us to live for you with our whole lives. Help us to know you. Help us to see you as a person, as someone who cares, as one who cares deeply about every aspect of our lives and who is involved. Lord, we give ourselves to you. In your name we pray. Amen.